0: Before we get started with an episode of the PowerCast, we have some chatter with our guest. Joshua Cutchen returns to the show this week, and our guest co-host is Sim Swartz. And we talked about a little test we do with our recording mechanism, where it learns the background noise. And sometimes it reduces all or most of it. So you don't hear it. You don't have to hear background noise. But because I'm on a separate input than they are, I have to do it twice. So it takes like six seconds to do. However, because we're possibly dealing with ultra-terrestrials here, maybe it took six hours?
1: It's entirely possible. I mean, I uh, i don't think I soiled my pants, so that probably <laughs> might preclude that possibility, but it's always its always a possibility.
0: It has to be family-friendly. This goes on a real network. So what you soil is your
1: business. Yes. No, like I knocked over a potted plant. That's what it was. Yeah.
2: You've got to watch over for
0: those potted plants. <laughs>
2: always calm, always cool, always collected, Gene. Well, collected, I'm going to dispute that. <laughs> uh, be my guest. That's fine.
0: Joshua, it's been a while since you've been on the show. You've got a new book, The Ecology of Soul's Companion, A New Mythology of Death and the Paranormal. That already raises 3,000 questions.
1: D- depending on the way you look at it so depending on the way you look at it it's it could be four books um so the main book is called ecology of souls a new mythology of death and the paranormal it turned out to be such a big project that i had to split that into volume 1 and volume 2 and then, you know, when you're looking at binding books with as many, you know, references as I have, I have 4,200 endnotes in the darn thing. Um, it became apparent that I needed to take the old school route that you used to see in academia, where you sort of have a separate companion. So the companion is that, that's what that is, although that uh, will be freely available on my website uh, later next week. There's been some amazon shenanigans in the background but um so it's ecology of souls volume one ecology of souls volume two the ecology of souls companion which is completely i don't want to say it's disposable but you know the you can have free access to the references you don't have to get the companion it's for print uh, completion of and then there is the ebook which is uh, both volumes one and two combined with the references so yeah between between one and, and four books depending on how you frame it I'm dizzy, folks. So therefore, this is the Ecology of Souls disposable. Well, the, the companion is, yeah, but I released all of them at the same time, so. So they're not disposable. No, 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 it's, yeah, it's, it's one book, Ecology of Souls, that I had to split into two if I wanted to have it in print, and then just, and there's a separate one that's just the end notes and uh, references and whatnot, yeah.
0: I'm giving you a hard time, Joshua. Seriously, what, pray tell? is of a new mythology of death and the paranormal
1: as would probably be you know if anybody remembers some of my previous appearances i've I've always sort of been a bit disinterested in the in the extraterrestrial hypothesis um not because i don't think it has a certain merit here and there but there are always these pernicious outliers that i can never really um i've never i have never been able to really discard right and i've always been attracted to the uh to the you know Jacques Vallee school of thought, um, especially comparisons that you can make between the UFO phenomena and fairy folklore. So there were those things in the back of my mind, but also um, two things that I'd always found really compelling. You know, one was the famous quote from Ann Strieber. Who collecting uh, correspondence to Whitley from experiencers in the wake of communion made the observation that this has something to do with what we call death. That was her quote. So there's that. And then there's also the fact that you have these stories that, you know, time and time again, uh, dead loved ones, or, you know, things appearing to be dead loved ones, if you want to take the sort of screen memory angle, I guess, um, keep on appearing in alien abductions. So that to me suggested that there was something else going on. Uh, at a deeper level, so the idea was to just look at the uFO phenomena through those two lenses or through those two you know aspects uh, and specifically more specifically like looking at it through death. But uh, what became really apparent was that as I tried to do that, there was a lot of background information that needed to be there, and there were a lot of different angles in the paranormal, more broadly speaking, that I I found were very much related. So it ended up being this really comprehensive look and kind of a snapshot of the way that I view the phenomena today.
2: Extremely comprehensive, I should say. Uh, I've spent the last uh, uh, week going over uh, both Volume 1 and 2, and uh, I I have to say, I mean, this is a very well-written and very well-researched uh, couple of books. Well, thank you. Thank you so
1: much, Tim. I appreciate it. Um... It is long. (laughs) I guess that's – I don't know if that's a virtue or not. Um, But yeah, it it, it became clear because I just mainly wanted to tackle the UFO topic, but it became clear that if I did that, I would have these endless digressions and things like these older ideas of the way that we conceptualize the soul as you know, being part of multiple souls or being able to wander away from its owner and things like that. So it became apparent that like, you know what, let's just get all that out ahead of the UFO discussion and then – talk about UFOs. So that's roughly the separation that there is. Although there's plenty of UFOs in Volume 1, that's that's roughly the distinction. Volume 1 is just sort of bringing everyone up to speed on that. While also talking about things like near-death experiences, out-of-body experiences, fairy folklore, shamans, shamanism, entheogens, ley lines, monuments, you know, all these things that, again, fall under that umbrella. I don't talk about time, uh, because I thought the book was long enough without adding another, you know, 500 pages uh, trying to, to figure out you know if time is cyclical or you know retro causality or any of those things so um but yeah i'm, I'm i've you know I, I feel confident that this is sort of a pretty good representation of the way that i tend to view the phenomena right now phenomenon right now or yeah phenomenon depending on your perspective i guess
0: <laughs> well there is of course the possible connection between ufo abductions and near-death experiences that kind of brings you close to a possible afterlife concept doesn't it
1: it does, and and I think readers will perceive a lot of, um, you know, Kenneth Ringen here, a lot of Eddie Bullard, you know, individuals who have drawn connections not only between UFO abductions and near-death experiences, but also, you know, these sh- shamanic initiations as well. But I think what I came around to Intuit, and again, a giant asterisk beside all my stuff, you know, with and that asterisk reads maybe, right? Like, I'm not sure, but what I have perceived is that the near-death experience might be… To me, like that the purest form of this contact modality, and then all these other things share those same attributes and I, I I suspect I can't say for certain, but I suspect that the reason that all these things tend to look so similar up to and including even some Krypton encounters, some not all, are because you do approach that uh, that sort of boundary point uh, between. Our world in the afterlife, our world in the other world, whatever you want to call it. But it really is that, that you you're basically brought to death's door in a lot of these things, you know. I mean you obviously that happens with NDEs, but um you'll find people who have taken entheogens and whatnot uh say the same thing. And of course, you know, a lot of these shamanic initiations are almost de facto near-death experiences. So what does that say about the alien abduction scenario that it resembles that to such a strong degree? So just trying to flesh out a lot of those parallels and uh, again, keep on bringing in that uh, ancient soul craft, that ancient soul concept that we seem to have disposed of in the modern West was really important to me. An interesting
0: concept here that arrives. So people who claim to have been abducted by the occupants of a flying saucer They claim to have communicated with those documents. Therefore, they're talking to something in the afterlife or in
1: another dimension. What are they talking to? Well, that's that's a great question. And I think that's something that I'm not really sure if I have a solid answer on. You know, I I definitely think there's a case to be made that uh, these things might be an aspect of the self. So In other words, they might be if you look at some of those polypsychic traditions that we have multiple selves, it might be the higher self, you know, that old that old idea. It might be literally our dead uh, in another guise. And we can talk about the strengths and weaknesses of these things because there's a physical component that I don't think you can deny to the UFO contact. And uh, there's also an idea that I'm really fond of entertaining, which is um The idea that these might be psychopomps, which are the figures that in traditional religions or even some folk figures that escort the human dead across the transition to the afterlife.
0: Let's transition to these announcements with Joshua, Gene and Tim. You're in the ParaCast. Hey, listeners.
3: And unlike gas generators, solar generators run quietly, emit no dangerous fumes, and produce an endless supply of free electricity from the sun. Whether it's wildfires, dangerous weather, power grid issues, or just getting off the grid, you'll never have to suffer through painful power outages again.
4: We'd like to hear from you. If you have a comment or question about the Paracast, send it to news at theparacast.com. That's news at theparacast.com. And don't forget to visit our famous Paracast community forums at forum.theparacast.com.
0: Okay, so these are the individuals helping transition you to the afterlife. So, is there for UFO abduction some sort of near-death experience?
6: I think
1: an argument could be made that it is of a same character. You know, I think that the idea of just labeling every UFO contact, you know, on this near-death sliding spectrum is a bit reductive. But I I think the substantive hallmarks are are still there. And, you know, as, as far as exactly what these psychopomps might do, I think that this is something that has kind of been lurking in the background. Of my work, but in the work of others as well, and hasn't really been addressed. So, psychopomps would be characters like Egypt's Anubis, or the Norse Valkyries, or uh, Greek Hermes. And if you look at the work of someone like George Hansen and the Trickster in the Paranormal, he, you know, goes great lengths to say that uh, you know certain trickster gods are gods of the threshold, and what's more of a threshold than, than the point of death, right? And to the extent that you know, Hermes himself was a was a trickster figure. So you have this sort of tricksterism that has been alluded to in the past i would also argue that this is sort of a connection that haunts passport to magonia to a degree you know valet made these great comparisons between fairies and ufos but the unspoken background information is that a lot of cultures pre-theosophy thought of fairies as being intimately tied to the dead in some instances actually being the dead so if you use the transitive property dead to fairies to ufos i think it suggests a lot about the phenomenon you know, so you have this, you have this liminal tricksterish threshold crossing character in both uh, these psychopomp's and in a lot of modern paranormal in general, not just specifically UFO occupants. And then you have some of the symbolism which keeps on popping up uh, in a lot of different uh, UFO sightings and things like birds, things like dogs, but also you know some of the things that. Are said some of the illusions, the emphasis that a lot of these occupants place on the human soul and on spirituality, and then on top of all that, and this is really the cherry on top for me, is that one of the most potent psychopomp symbols is is the boat. You know, you think of the, the ferry crossing the river Styx, F E R R Y, not F-A-I-R, not F A I R Y, right? <laughs> but you think of the ferry crossing the river Styx, and you think of you know, uh, Viking funerals and and things like this. Like it's it's a very common symbol for that afterlife transition and. What What happens when a culture maps the entire world and realizes that the other world, the afterlife, doesn't lie beyond the next mountain range, doesn't lie across the sea, isn't under under the earth? Where do we transpose that to? And I would argue that you transpose that to the stars. And the fact that that the UFO phenomenon is so transportation focused um, really suggests that that boat motif is, again, emerging in this new body of mythology that we have. Is this a universal consciousness One of the things that I didn't get to discuss as much as I probably should have or even would have liked were, you know, concepts of monism, the idea that the brain body uh, distinction is sort of a a falsehood and that um, everything is one with everything. Uh, That's certainly something that you see in a lot of these stories. You know, I mean, I think it was maybe Dana Howard might have been the first contactee to coin the term source, you know, and that's something that pops up in John Mack's writings as well. Um, But there is definitely uh, a, a flavor of monism throughout a lot of these uh ufo contact experiences and if you look at some of the again we're in like real woo-woo territory here folks right And I, I don't necessarily like or ascribe to this stuff but i i wanted to examine it because it's not going away if you look at some of the uh some of the things and sort of the fringes of the ufo literature you do find allusions not only to obviously reincarnation and past lives that was a strong component in max work, but also ideas like, you know, dual souls, the idea that someone can have an alien soul and a human soul within them. And, uh, that's an odd idea. But if you do think about this being sort of a universal consciousness where distinctions are blurred on the other side of whatever boundary separates us from death, then that makes the idea a little bit more palatable. I would think,
7: you
0: know, when you bring up having two souls, in your body, I think of the sci-fi TV series Stargate SG-1, where the other soul was a parasitic creature called a ga'uld. And they were the gods of ancient Egypt, and they existed by possessing a human host. Therefore, you had the human and you had the ga'uld
1: in one body. Yeah, and, and it's 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 a much more ancient idea. I'm not exactly up to speed on that and because you know a lot of the stargate stuff does have some echoes and actual you know mythology for egypt but um i'm not quite up to speed on that but i i do know that you know the egyptians were very much involved in concepts of polypsychism i think they might have suggested up to nine souls that we each possessed each with their own degree of you know autonomy talk about multiple personality disorder well i mean that's certainly a, a a a a good thing to bring up because i you know i think an argument can be made that uh our current understanding of mental health might be a little bit misconstrued you know there 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 is a line of uh, a line of thought in some amongst some modern psychiatrists where they actually encourage people to engage with the voices in their head if they're schizophrenic and oftentimes these people have from what I understand, um, quite positive outcomes from actually engaging with the voices instead of just trying to suppress them. So that would be much more in line with, you know, a polypsychic sort of interpretation of ourselves. And and we still entertain these ideas to this day. I mean, you talk about like, you know, well, my heart says no, but my mind says yes, and things like that. And I kind of wonder if there isn't more truth to that, because you see it across a lot of different civilizations, both in the old and new world, that we're composed of multiple constituent components, you know, some of which, can leave us and wander about at will. And, you know, if that's a possibility, then it, I think it brings a lot of the things that we assumed were external to us in the paranormal uh, sheds those in a different light, I would say.
8: Well,
0: one of the characters in the UFO field that communicated with something that may or may have been external or internal was, of course, Richard Shaver. He was communicating with the Dero's and Tiros the remnants of an ancient race that existed on Earth and fled during a possible worldwide catastrophe. But he was also hospitalized, I guess, with the feeling that, oh, he hears voices, therefore he must be nuts. On the other hand, obviously, if you follow the story of Shaver, that the parents of his first wife railroaded him into a sanitarium because they just wanted to get rid of him.
1: Yeah, it's it's an unfortunate story, and you kind of have to wonder if there had been a more accepting family or you know culture around um, what Shaver was going through. If if you know his his uh, experiences might have been interpreted a little bit differently. Um, and you you know you, you know you see this with a lot of different people in, who have had UFO contact. You know they either you know oftentimes as as a culture we tend to collectively basically shun these people and uh i really think that we very well might be all the poorer for it you know if they were in an animus society where ideas like shamanism were tolerated and even celebrated um they might have a much different experience but uh you know the one demographic in the world that you can make fun of with no repercussions the one demographic where nobody's really looking out for them not being made fun of is is the paranormal experiencer or the ufo experiencer
0: This would particularly be the contactee or the channeler, someone who claims to be in contact with some other force, a higher force, whatever that force might be. We're talking with Joshua Cutchen, and obviously he's got a very wide range and some might say very complicated or sophisticated view of paranormal events. With Gene and Tim and Joshua, you're in
2: the (laughs) Paracast.
10: Are you prepared for more severe food shortages? It's likely that over the next year, serious food shortages will plague us. American farmers are dealing with insane diesel fuel prices and fertilizer shortages, which will lower crop yields. And that means your family's favorite foods will soon be in short supply, while fetching sky-high prices. Inflation is the new normal, folks. It's time to act before things get even worse. Go to MyPatriotSupply.com without delay. You'll find ready-hour emergency food kits from my my Patriot Supply that lasts up to 25 years in storage. Each kit provides over 2000 calories a day to keep your energy up. Order your emergency food kits today by going to mypatriotsupply.com. Your food ships fast and arrives in unmarked boxes. Listen, there are ways to beat food shortages. When you're ready for real preparedness, make sure to look for Ready Hour foods from My Patriot Supply. Go to mypatriotsupply.com right now. mypatriotsupply.com USA Radio News.
11: I'm Tony Marusso reporting. Steve Bannon, who was a key associate of former President Donald Trump and an influential figure on the American right, was convicted on Friday of contempt of Congress for defying a subpoena from the committee investigating last year's attack on the U.S. Capitol. A jury found Bannon, 68, guilty of two misdemeanor counts for refusing to provide testimony or documents to the House of Representatives select committee. He's looking at 30 days to a year behind bars for each count and a fine of 100 to $100,000. He'll be sentenced in October. We may have lost a battle here today, but we're not going to lose this war. Independent truckers protesting California's new gig worker law blockaded California's third busiest seaport for the third straight day on Friday, delaying shipments at the state's top agricultural export hub and adding to U.S. supply chain headaches. This is USA Radio News. The House Judiciary Committee is working on legislation to ban certain assault-style rifles. Democratic Chairman Jerry Nadler challenges Republicans to support the measure in light of recent mass shootings. This is Senator Dick Durbin. There is no reason for a person to own a military assault weapon. It has no value for hunting or sports or even self-defense. It is a killing machine. And when I ask how many AR-15s there are in the United States, I can't get a good number. Making his first public appearance following the House subcommittee's hearing on the January 6th attack Thursday, Senator Josh Hawley, the Republican from Missouri, took to the stage at the Turning Point USA Summit in Tampa Friday night. While not addressing the footage or the actions of the rioters inside the Capitol, he focused his speech on the battle for free, fair, and secure elections. Liberals out there in the liberal media, just in case you haven't gotten the message yet, I do not regret it. And I am not backing down. This is USA Radio News.
12: is Richard Dolan. You're listening to the
0: Paracast. So let us continue with that. You see, I think the problem in allocating all this to the UFO field is people want a simple answer. And I understand that. The more you delve into the paranormal, the more crazy it gets in terms of complications. So they want the flying saucer to be a spaceship. And maybe it is, or some of them are. They want people who claim to be in contact with aliens to be either nuts or having some internal experience that they can't properly explain. People who see ghosts, well, they think they're in touch with dead people. People who see cryptids, I don't know what they're supposed to be. Maybe they all come (laughs) here from other dimensions via the multiverse.
1: It's one of those things where... um you know, one of the, the most endearing criticisms that I run into is, you know, them saying, Oh, well you're saying that, you know, UFOs might be spirit phenomena or might be psychic in nature and you know, these things don't leave burn marks in the ground. And I say, well, let's let's take a step back from that that claim. You know, this is something that Terrence McKenna addressed on Dr. Jeffrey Mishlove's original Thinking Aloud show, and he said that, you know, he made he made the uh observation that, you know, Carl Jung actually said that uh we don't have the intellectual tools to explore how flying saucers might sit at the intersection of the physical and the psychic um but you know beyond that let's let's you know let's be a little bit more pragmatic and say well what does that mean well i think best explanation or the best illustration of where those two things meet can be seen in psi phenomena and in ghost hunting you know one of the things when i wrote where the footprints in my book on weird bigfoot with tim renner um One of the things that we kept on getting confronted with was people saying, well, you know, ghosts don't leave footprints in the woods. And I'm like, have you ever read any early parapsychological literature? Because that was literally one of the first techniques in ghost hunting, was to spread talcum powder on the floor and wait for footprints to manifest. And I don't think that there are a lot of people who entertain the possibility of ghosts existing who would say that they are material, you know, that they are really physical in the same sense that, you know, the desk that I'm sitting at is, right? But they can impact the physical world. And similarly, um, perhaps even more respectably, I would say, if you look at the laboratory work of some folks like Dean Radin, Daryl Bim, Rupert Shultry, et cetera, people who are really trying to play by scientific rules and looking at uh, a lot of the side phenomena, there does seem to be the suggestion that psychic phenomena can interact with the physical world, and thoughts are immaterial, yet can interact with the physical world. So once you sort of establish that for people, some of these ideas that you talk about become a little bit more palatable, I think. But yeah, we have this, um, it's what, uh, Greg Bishop calls a certainty fetish, right? People want to say UFOs are this or they aren't. Or, you know, the UFOs are spaceships or they don't exist. And I think there's a lot of different possibilities. Um, even if you adhere to an idea like I have, like I leave room for extraterrestrials. I leave room for unexplained natural phenomena. I leave room for Trevor James Constable style sky creatures. Like I love that idea. But yeah, I don't think it, it really does anyone any good to be so certain about what these things are or aren't when we really don't have the answers yet. And so to that end, I like to explore some of the less popular avenues of speculation to see if there's something that we haven't been ignoring for a long time.
0: I wanted to go back just briefly to Trevor James Constable, because I think most people who study UFOs these days have no clue who this guy was. But he wrote a book suggesting that at least some ufos were physical creatures that fly can you define what he worked on well you
1: know i know you spoke about you know i think you'd called it dirk gopel which was this idea that there were you know these entities these almost amoeba like maybe even if memory serves we'd probably call them plasmoids today um that lived in the upper echelons of the atmosphere and uh and would you know drift about, and that was responsible for at least some of these UFO sightings. And it's it's an it's a peculiar idea, um, but I do find it attractive in certain cases. I mean, there's a case that I talk about in the book that uh, where an experiencer came to me. She was with her either husband or boyfriend at the time. They're still together. I can't recall which. They were on uh, Mackinac Island, and they were at a Halloween event and uh, they were UFO enthusiasts but they'd never seen a UFO and they were sort of joking about how they wanted to see a UFO and they look in the air and they both see something in the sky and she sees this Giant sort of pinkish, organic amoeba thing floating through the night sky, and and she was very clear about the fact that she perceived it as being organic and alive. And when she uh, tried to corroborate this with her husband, who was right beside her at the time, uh, he said that he saw a giant like thunderbird creature, um, like something that you would see in you know a lot of Native American artwork. You know, part of me doesn't know what to make of that, right? I mean, that's <laughs> you could just say, oh, well, they're they're both lying, but I I didn't get that impression at all when I spoke with these folks. It is not uncommon to have people report seeing anomalies in the sky, but describing the anomalies differently, and that sort of brings in ideas about how much we are bringing to our perceptions when we see these things, and sort of a co-creation hypothesis. Um, but, you know, also, I mean, I, I look at something like the image of the Thunderbird, and You do hear these stories from time to time about even structured craft that turn into birds. Um, My editor, Barbara Fisher, had a similar experience when she was in her youth, where she saw um, a flying saucer, and her mother swore up and down that she saw a red bird. And... (laughs) That sounds so nonsensical until you consider the fact that the bird is a universal, and I don't use that term lightly. I mean, literally, every you know indigenous people on the on the, in the world thought of the bird as a symbol of the soul, and that the, that a bird could be a soul. You know, you see this in a lot of European beliefs that birds in the house meant doom or death. And then when you take that and you hold it up against um, some of Carl Jung's ideas that he espoused. Uh, including the possibility that the UFO might be the externalized soul in some form or fashion. And then you take that and couple with the idea that we have multiple souls that can wander. It kind of makes you question whether or not something like that could be at play, at least at the very least on sort of a mythopoetic level, I guess.
2: I like the idea that you brought out in the book that if the human mind doesn't have a conception on something unknown that uh, it fills in that spot and there was a there was a name that that you called it
1: yeah yeah this is um i mean yeah the, i i am a big fan of this idea nowadays um and maybe it's because it's the only way that i can reconcile some of these inconsistencies um you see similar ideas cropping up in the work of uh Jenny Randalls and Hillary Evans um this idea that we're sort of bringing some aspect of our own expectations to the phenomena, uh, and that's what we end up seeing because either we can't handle what we're actually looking at or our brains literally aren't wired. We don't have the hardware to actually perceive what we're looking at. And you know, Greg Bishop has taken up this idea of the co-creation theory in recent years that uh, that perhaps we're bringing something to the experience as well. And I find it really attractive. I find it really convenient Um But, you know, some of these things are so confounding that you have to sort of end up embracing some of these more convenient ideas just to make some sort of sense of them. Um, But, you know, so I have long wondered that the purest form of all these phenomena might not be the orbs of light because you see these in hauntings and cryptid encounters and… You know, UFO encounters, obviously. And I kind of wonder if that's not the naked version of whatever this other intelligence is. And then it somehow interacts with you, maybe through the synthesis of DMT, since, you know, the pineal gland is sensitive to light. Um, and it sort of like shuffles through the Rolodex of what you expect and what you want to see and what you don't want to see and says, oh, I think I'll look like a Bigfoot today. Or, oh, I think I'll look like a ghost today or a UFO or whatever, what have you. Um, I, again, completely untestable idea, but I find it to be an interesting line of speculation.
2: There was uh, a, a ghost hunter by the name – I think it was Lord, uh, Lloyd Pye – who uh, uh, was investigating a haunted house where people were seeing like a little old lady in it and uh, managed to achieve contact, I think, through a medium. And the, the spirit or whatever you want to call it admitted that its true form was actually – as she described it like a ball of light.
1: That is interesting and I wish I'd known about that like eight months ago. Where were you, Tim? <laughs> um Yeah, I I think I mean and you know, the, the balls of light aren't something that you get uh, brought up a lot amongst traditional cryptozoologists who uh, really are in the camp that these things are flesh and blood creatures, oftentimes relics of, you know, a prehistoric era. But once you get a couple of beers into the Bigfoot researcher at the conference, they'll say, oh, well, you know, we didn't see Bigfoot that night, even though we were looking for Bigfoot and there are Bigfoot sightings in this area all the time. But we did see these strange lights, you know. With Tim Joshua and Jean, you're in
2: the Pericast. <laughs>
14: Extendivite really works. Here's just a few testimonials from Amazon. RL, five stars. Been taking this for two months now. I feel better. Have more energy. April, my husband started taking Extendivite and he said he feels much better and has more energy. EW, need to try. Everyone needs this for their health. Great product, great people. Josie, it works great. This product has made my blood pressure and cholesterol stable. I highly recommend it. JC, great product, has worked well these last few years. To get your Extendivite today, go to Extendivite.com. That's X-T-E-N-D-O-V-I-T-E dot com. Or call us at 1-877-928-8822. Extend your life with Extendivite.
15: Forced. You, the Marasino cherry. Okay, 25,000 cheering next drive. Now, you want to try that on television? Well. You see,
14: radio is a very special medium because it stretches the imagination. Advertising your business with GCN is simple, effective, and more affordable than you might think. Visit advertise.gcnlive.com for more info. Take your business to the next level. Hi, this is James Fox. You're listening to the Paracast, the gold standard of paranormal radio.
0: It's interesting in some of those sci-fi TV shows. Star Trek does it. Obviously, Stargate SG-1 did it. Which is lights that you see are often highly intelligent beings that can assume different forms.
1: That's a really good point, Gene. You know, it's it, and you know back in earlier years i mean you know, tv works on a completely different budget than films do and, and i think sometimes it was a function of of the special effects budget but i think maybe they were onto something uh, in a lot more ways than they, than they realized um and you know one of the touchstones for one of the later chapters in the book where i go into cryptids um is Michelle Mergier's Lake Monster Traditions, which is a fantastic book. You know, I was like, some people came to me and they said, Oh, you did Passport to Magonia for Bigfoot when you did wear the footprints in. And I'm like, "Guess, I'm like, yeah, I guess so. You know, I'm not fit to tie his, his, his shoes, but. I can see how that perspective could be in there. And I said, maybe I should do that for Lake Monsters at some point. And then I picked up Mergere's Lake Monster Traditions. So and I'm like, oh no, it's already been done. Um, unfortunately, the book is out of print. I was able to snag a copy um, for relatively cheap, but it's like, it's hard to find at a reasonable price nowadays um but in that book he also talks about the um tendency for light anomalies to appear in monster lakes as well not only in the skies above uh, that's commonly described like Ness as well um but also underwater you know people who uh, end up scuba diving in some of these lake monster lakes will see a flash behind them and then they'll turn around and they won't see anything joshua at least it's better than being chased by a shark Oh, that's true. I mean, or, or you know, actually, what terrifies me is I grew up on Lake Norman in North Carolina and it's a man-made lake and you know there are stories like the lake the Loch norman monster they call it which is probably a fish but that's neither here nor there but i do know some friends of my father's who would uh, scuba dive in the lake which is terrifying on its own because i think visibility on a good day is like 18 inches right and they said that they would feel something come up to them and bump their elbow and they'd turn around and it would be a catfish as big as they were you know so uh that almost scares me more than the shark you know something about just not being able to see and Yeah, yeah. Although I will say, you know, after working on this book, uh, lake monsters terrify me a lot more than uh, I thought they would, given some of the symbolism that some of the ways that I interpreted the symbolism around them, I guess I should say. Do you focus much on undersea UFOs? And I was thinking of that
0: because just when I was doing a search for the book from Trevor James Constable, I came up with Invisible Residents from Ivan T. Sanderson back in the 60s, where he talked about underground or underwater ufos
1: yeah a a little bit you know that's that's a great touchstone uh work on uh, on this topic and uh i think it's a vastly underexplored topic um you know I, i i did talk about undersea ufos um at least in the sense that again we always tend to say that these things come from places that were always either the other world or the dead and i believe in thompson's folklore index One of the motifs that are listed is, um, you know, body of water as the underworld. And sure enough, you know, you'll find a lot of different traditions that talk about the afterlife or the underworld or the other world being under the sea or within a lake. Um, And, you know, to that extent, there are some people who suspect that the word soul is actually derived from, I believe, an old English or old German word for, for sea. And, you know, the sea is this constant metaphor that we use when we talk about. The final passage that we make where, you know, rivers returning to the sea and things like that. And indeed, my own, you know, suspicions about the way that the process of reincarnation works often sort of invoke that idea as well. Like, we all go to that and we come back from that, which, again, speaks to the idea that you mentioned about universal consciousness and monism and everything being one. Like, there's just this reservoir of soul energy at the other side. Sometimes it comes into this world, and when it does, just like you know, water droplets that you might get from the ocean, those came from everywhere, and they have been around for as long as you know anyone knows um, those molecules. So, yeah, I, I think that there's something to it. Um, but as far as like dissecting the actual cases of undersea UFOs, not a lot of that. But I, I don't think you can't not talk about that. You know,
2: I always appreciate, uh, and and I love books that that go. You know, Really you know, deep into the research of older mythologies, older you know religious texts, and uh, 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 and and they're pertinent to what's going on today. And I'm bringing up um, the Tibetan Book of the Dead, which hmm. you, you write quite a bit about in your book, and the the, the even though that this was something that was written, you know, God knows how long ago, there is a lot still going on today. That if you read the book, you're like, wow! Not <laughs> only not only with, you know, <laughs> with near death experiences, but the whole UFO mythology as well.
1: Oh yeah, I mean it's it's. I think you know whenever you've it's always interesting to see a near death researcher's feelings about um, the Bardo. After or the Barlow Todal or Thodal, pardon my pronunciation. Um, after they've been looking at near-death experiences for a while, because they always they always come back and they're like, "This sounds a lot like what people are experiencing today," you know. And uh, again, I, I'm going to cite Carl Jung. Um, he said that you know it, it, it's so uncanny some of the similarities that you hear. It makes you wonder if there actually is some validity to it. And uh, it, this sentiment is paralleled in modern researchers like Gregory Shushan, um, who is a fantastic researcher in uh indigenous and ancient civilizations concepts of near-death experiences and comparing them to modern experiences as well um but yeah i mean there's there, there, there are so many different things and one of those things again is the idea that you'll meet monsters but they aren't necessarily monsters they're aspects of yourself that you haven't dealt with
0: so i am and, uh, a big hairy
1: creature who roams around in the forests possibly i mean if you look at things like uh See if I'm mixing. Yeah, I'm sort of mixing mythologies here, but there are antecedents. Uh, you know, the Hindu rakshasa is, is a demon that's covered in hair, and you can sort of find analogs to that in a lot of these Buddhist teachings as well. But you know, and, and again, you find this. You know, the title of the of the of the book, Ecology of Souls, um, is a Terence McKennaism. Where he speculated that the DMT realm might be the ecology of souls. And according to him, now, you know, you've got to take everything Terry says with a grain of salt, but he was told by a uh, highly placed Buddhist monk um, whom he turned on to DMT, his words, um, that the DMT experience was the farthest you could get without crossing the point of no return uh so terrence started referring to it as the bungee into the bardo um and i always thought that was a that was a charming turn of phrase let me throw this out
0: here and i'm going to be vague about it because i don't want to identify the person someone i know very well took a dose of a hashish back in the early 70s it's a woman And other people who tried that substance had barely any effect. This stuff is no good. Doesn't do anything to anyone except for her laughing and giggling and reveling in this other incredible universe that she visited. Now, after she came down from it, again, unique amongst those who took the rather mild dose of this hallucinogenic, for months it took her... All that time to begin to come down from the experience that affected her day-to-day life. And you think, did she happen to stumble into a real place? Did she go wacko? I don't think she went wacko. I I just think she might have stumbled into a place that we normally do not visit.
1: I mean, that's that's a great question. What I find really interesting about that is the fact that nobody else had that same experience, which, again, something else that you see in sightings is that two out of five people will see something strange in the sky and the other three won't. But, you know, you've got things like individual biochemistry, um, set and setting is a huge part of these experiences. Um, you know, there was, uh, an, an anecdote that McKenna used to tell about, uh, biochemist Alexander Shulgin, who exposed his, uh, classroom to some sort of unidentified, undefined, unidentified chemical. And, uh, of the 200 students that were in there, all but two failed to, to smell it. And the two that did became physically ill. And, and McKenna thought that, um, or rather Shulgin thought, that uh, they were probably more sensitive to that chemical than everybody else in the class. And a lot of these aromatic compounds have a lot of uh, similarities to some of these entheogens and psychedelics and whatnot. So there a reasonable supposition can be made that there are genetic differences in the way that we relate to, uh, to some of these substances. You know, that and uh, from what I understand, again, I'm a pretty straight edge guy, but from what I understand, hashish ain't what it used to be <laughs> nowadays, but that's neither here nor there.
0: Well, this is, of course, going back to the early 70s where this encounter occurred. And those of us who were aware of the person who had this experience thought for quite a few years there that she'd really gone off the deep end. It did make changes in her life that even after the initial effects kind of sort of expired, it made changes in her life that, probably took years to overcome. And I just wonder about that. But then again, I think a lot of this is just triggering something that's already there. And how you react to it is up to you and what you expect. And maybe this person expected something to happen, needed mm -hmm. something to happen, and that was the answer. I don't know. I don't pretend to know. And that's really the most I'll say publicly about it because, as I said, I just don't know. Tim. Joshua and Jean, you're in
4: The Paracast.
9: You are listening to GCN. Visit GCNlive.com today.
0: Hey, listeners. I want you to have the entire Paracast experience. So I'd like to tell you about After the Paracast.
4: Welcome back to the Paracast, the gold standard of paranormal radio. And now, here's Gene Steinberg.
0: Joshua Kutchen is here, and he's author of The Ecology of Souls, which is a two-volume set with The Companion. A New Mythology of Death and the Paranormal. Tim Swartz is our guest co-host. Joshua, I think I'm going to run back to this because a lot of people (laughs) who have been exposed just to UFOs, general ghost stuff, listen to you and say, oh, what's he talking about? And this is, of course, one of the problems we have. Like, for now, if you believe the U.S. government investigating UFOs, all the sightings started in 2004. There is a provision in the legislation to look at physical effects, but none of them even begin to remotely hint at any of this stuff.
1: A couple of things come to mind, and this is something that, you know, I was was giving a talk on a Trojan feast, my first book, and about, you know, the food and drink in these encounters, and some lady in the the audience said, uh, well, you know, I've had experiences all my lifetime, and I've never had this happen to me. And I said, well, I said, I've been driving all my lifetime, and I've never had a blowout. doesn't mean it doesn't happen.
0: Don't but, say that uh, on the way home okay. tonight you may find two tires are going two tires are gonna go plus one of the valves in your engine so be careful
1: what you say I'm just superstitious enough maybe I should knock on wood but yeah and in, in the I have a frustration with the current um, I call it sort of a technological fetish that the UFO community has and it's fine and it you know it's yes a lot of it does look like technology I get it and I'm not saying that there isn't something something like that at play, but again, I, I sort of want to shed light on these things that we don't talk about. You know, to to the actual disclosure issue specifically, something I talk about later in the book. You know, because people will say, oh, well, but we have metamaterials, and you know things show up on radar. Well, number one, Young talks about things showing up on radar and the idea that maybe psychic phenomena can do that. He he does talk about that. In addition to you know non-physical things having physical effects. But to the metamaterials and disclosure specifically, you know, I, I, I say in the book at one point, I say, you know, well, if Thor's hammer existed and we got a sample of it, what would that analysis yield? You know, it would probably say unknown or we can't manufacture it on Earth. Now, of course, it's, you know, it's a, I understand why some people might find that a little bit silly, but I think it does underscore the point of um, government secrecy. Like, which upends your view of the world and your day-to-day life more. The idea that reality resembles Close Encounters of the Third Kind, or the idea that reality resembles the Iliad or the Odyssey. You know, I know which one I find stranger personally. There has been a government motivation since, you know, at least the Roman Empire, probably earlier. By
0: the way, when you bring up Close Encounters of the Third Kind, one of the things people don't talk so much about is the core question here, where several people are summoned to meet E.T and go off with them to another planet, possibly, as a kind of a cultural exchange. Now, that <sighs> message was not conveyed to them physically that we know
1: about. Right. They just know that they have to go there. You know what, Gene? You make another fantastic point. It's funny how whenever people talk about close encounters of the third kind, they sort of gloss over the telepathy angle, right? you know i've gotten in trouble on this show in the past for saying that uh telepathy is antithetical to materialism and physicalism and you know maybe that is out of line but at the very least it suggests that reality is a lot stranger than we um give it credit for and i think because this whole phenomena is stranger than we give it credit for. Something like telepathy is real and does exist. And it suggests that we should at least be looking at some of these alternative explanations that do cross over into that dreaded woo-woo territory. So I think it's, that's an excellent point, really.
2: You bring up metamaterials and uh the the odd thing and this uh this harkens back also i think to the fairy lore is that uh, a lot of times when this material you know bits and pieces that we are seen in actual uh, uh ufo sightings and encounters that have been uh, collected afterwards you know the ufo debris and analyzed a lot of times it's found to be very common very mundane metals tin aluminum things mm-hmm. like that rather than something you know exotic yeah, that was you know constructed uh, in orbit around alpha centauri or something
1: that puts me in the mind of a couple of different things and i guess the first one that i would talk about would be we've always had artifacts from the other We've had fairy flags. We've had little tiny fairy boots made out of mouse skin. Um, We've had saint's relics, sometimes contradictory saint's relics. You know, The saint must have had 14 fingers because there are too many fingers that are (laughs) are hanging out around there. Yet these things do seem to have their own anomalous attributes and uh, certainly exercise a a certain degree of power over people and their expectations. So I tend to, in that sort of very Patrick Harper sense, frame these around being – Uh, just sort of relics that almost, dare I say spontaneously generate you know like like a ports or something right in in in, in poltergeist cases um the other thing it puts me in my in the mind of is you know a great example of that what you were speaking to specifically is these implants that people find and you know they're, they're always cut out and they're almost uniformly you know a bit of ceramic or you know calcified iron or something like that you know and of course the the response from the eth community is like oh well they're they're so uh they're so advanced that they that they don't look like technology and again maybe but once you take a look at a lot of these traditions from around the world and the very strong tradition that you'll find in a lot of different cultures of spirit darts and uh basically projectiles from the the other world or from spirits or from ghosts or evil uh you know magical practitioners they're almost always revealed to be mundane like they're almost always revealed to be a rock or you know a leaf or a twig or something you know you can also find that in fairy folklore as well if you offended the fairies they might send a blast of blustery wind to give you a blister. All these share the same root word. And uh, that fairy blast, which manifests as a blister, when it was lanced, would almost always have, you know, junk inside of it, string, or bits of bone, or bits of uh, twigs, or or rocks, or or glass. So I I think, to me, I, I don't necessarily know what that says about the phenomena beyond the fact that it definitely seems to be part and parcel of the same thing. That's used, by the way, as a
0: device to debunk this. Well, it's not an alien alloy like trinium from Stargate or something like that. It's from Earth. It's common minerals, common substances, tree branches, whatever it is. It is not alien. Therefore, being not provably alien, it couldn't possibly be from another planet. But then again, if you look for this search for life on other worlds, okay, And what are they looking for? They're looking for planets with Earth-like conditions. And if they have Earth-like conditions, well, mm, so life can spawn there. Earth-like conditions mean a breathable atmosphere, similar vaguely in composition to the atmosphere of Earth. It could mean native minerals, native fauna, flora, Native animals, other creatures that have some vague semblance to what we see here. That's the universe we see, of course, in Star Trek, Stargate, and Star Wars. It's mostly to save money on putting strange things on people's faces to make them look weird. But they all depict human-type beings. And maybe that's the way it is. If you—if E.T. lands tomorrow and you examine something of which a spaceship is made... Hey, it's not going to be so different.
1: Well, you know, a sort of riff on that idea is one of the most common criticisms of the extraterrestrial hypothesis are things that I'm very sympathetic to. Like, well, why are these things bipedal? Like, why do they look so human, right? In the spirit of intellectual honesty, you have to say, well... Maybe there's something intrinsic about the universe where the bipedal uh, configuration is just more suitable for intelligent life, and there's some sort of unwritten uh, rule of evolution or tendency for intelligent life to gravitate towards that that particular… Configuration. You know, I'm, I'm not sure. Um, I, I think that if you look at sort of Earth analogs, there is some evidence that we should expect some commonalities. You know, I had a friend um, who has interest in some of these subjects who works at uh, Jet Propulsion Labs, and we were talking about it. And he uh, made the observation that some scientists have talked about. The fact that octopus eyes so closely resemble human eyes and yet they grew up and grew up, (laughs) they evolved in such a, a vastly different environment than we have suggests that there is some sort of governing tendency for evolution to evolve eyes that way. So some of the latest thinking suggests that we would see eyes that look at the visible spectrum or different spectra of light on alien worlds as well. I don't know.
0: As well, we have to do this pause that refreshes or something of that nature with Tim, Joshua, and Gene. You're in the Paracast. Hey, listeners. I want you to have the entire Paracast experience. So I'd like to tell you about After the Paracast. After the Paracast is an exclusive feature for subscribers to the Paracast Plus. Once again, the paracast.plus. Prices are just 50 a week less than a cup of coffee at your local convenience store. Check out the paracast.plus to learn more about Paracast Plus.
17: Hey, trader, listen up. The markets have changed. Have you changed your trading strategies? Vantage Point can help you conquer volatility. Learn to trade with artificial intelligence. Text the word money to 813-813 and discover how to predict stock market trends one to three days in advance with up to 87.4% proven accuracy. No matter which way the market moves, Vantage Point's patented AI can give you a massive edge. Text money to 813-813 to get what you need to stay ahead of market. Markets and find your best entries and exits. Text the word MONEY to eight one three eight one
13: three. Trading involves financial risk and is not suitable for all investors. Past results do not guarantee future performance. By texting, you agree to the terms available at vantagepointsoftware.com slash terms and consent to receive calls and texts using automated technology about offers or info by or on behalf of Vantage Point. Your consent is not a condition to purchase and can be revoked at any time. Message and data rates may apply.
17: Text MONEY to eight one three eight one three.
19: GCN's policy is open forum avoiding censorship. Defense costs for words spoken outside of our control supersede the ability to deliver voices to this important talk platform. The First Amendment is the foundation of our core values. Cancel culture is silencing voices regardless of perspective. Freedom to speak is in the balance. Support the legitimacy of speech itself. Consider donating to SaveGCN.com. That's SaveGCN.com.
7: That's 800-998-7173.
16: As Dr. Wallach says, we all have nutrient deficiencies in our diets and must supplement with 90 essential nutrients in proper balances. At no cost or obligation, Get a personal certified holistic health coach to help you develop a supplement program based on Dr. Wallach's recommendations. Call Linda at 833-VITAL90. That number to call is 833-848-2590. That's 833-VITAL90.
4: We'd like to hear from you. If you have a comment or question about the Paracast, send it to news at theparacast.com. That's news at theparacast.com. And don't forget to visit our famous Paracast community forums at forum.theparacast.com.
0: So E.T. is sometimes depicted as an intelligent octopus or a haptopod from the movie Arrival, where... Intelligent beings with multiple limbs, but not quite an octopus.
1: Mm-hmm. So I I'd, I'd read the short story before I saw the film and it's actually a, a fantastic adaptation of it um but yeah for, for for my money that's one of the best ET films to have come out in the past probably decade honestly you know I always have this problem with with extraterrestrial media where it's like you know they have this fantastic technology and they come down from the stars and then they step out and they're like mindless bloodthirsty monsters it's like give me some smart aliens again and and arrival it's definitely scratched that itch i guess for me
0: Well, in the Stargate series, the Ga'uld are scavengers. They take the technology of others and they appropriate it for themselves. So, of course, that explains why some pretty bizarre creatures can be heavily advanced. But then the other thing we never look at in terms of this is if there's a physical phenomenon and E.T. is a thousand, five thousand years ahead of us, how could we possibly begin to comprehend their technology. I mean, consider this, just taking an iPhone or an iPad back to somebody 50 or 100 years ago, and it's exotic and it totally cannot be understood. Think of hundreds or thousands of years. You know, is this the cute continuum?
1: Well, you know, it's it's like that old Arthur C. Clarkism that any sufficiently advanced technology would look like magic. But I I do think, again, this is not going to be for everybody. But if you entertain the idea that the materialist paradigm might not be the way that the world operates and that there might be something to things like magic and magical thinking, then you have to acknowledge that truism that he employs is kind of a double-edged sword and that any magic would resemble sufficiently advanced technology. Again, you know, I'm not magically operant myself, even though I'm familiar with a lot of that stuff, Um, but I think it's, it's, it's worth a consideration.
0: Everything we do here, we're trying to interpret in some conventional way. But obviously, when we talk about advanced technology, I think of the scene in contact. People don't like me mentioning movies and pop culture because what we understand about UFOs is framed within pop culture or Bigfoot or ghosts. So we have to do that. So that example, another smart sci-fi movie, is that E.T. has an appearance we couldn't accept. So therefore, E.T. appears in the image of the father of the protagonist played by Jodie Foster. And it's explained to her, this is why we are doing this. Otherwise, again, you would not accept us. And that Mm -hmm. could be part of it right there, or it could be that they have a shape or a configuration that's pure energy. That's why I said Q Continuum.
1: I mean, I, I think that that's a really good point. And again, that's the sort of co-creation uh, theory in, in a bit of a nutshell. But there's always been this interplay between the fiction and the reality of sightings. I mean, you can cite, you know, how the UFO phenomena, all, phenomenon always stays like one step ahead of us, one generation ahead of us from, you know, steampunk airships around the turn of the century. And then Black Triangles before we really had the uh, un, un unrolling of the stealth bomber and then now, you know. Art Deco flying saucers back in the 50s, and it always seems just a little bit more advanced than what we have, but also um, Martin Kottmeyer, who I think is one of the great unsung heroes of this field in terms of his ability to retain and and collate uh, research, um, made the point that a lot of the instances of electronics malfunctions uh, from UFOs are actually uh, prefigured in the pulps, right? I mean, that's some of the, the first appearances that you find are actually there. Now, of course, you can sort of quibble about whether or not we should understand all aerial phenomena as UFOs and whether or not those might have had some interactions with electronics, I don't know. But as far as, like, space people are interfering with electronics, that first appears in fiction. Uh, I believe the, one of the, there was, like, one thing with a motorcycle headri- headlight around the 1910s, but, like, the, the sort of engine malfunction, electronics malfunction became really prominent after, I believe it was Leveland? Am I remembering that flap right? Texas. But again, thank you. (laughs) I always (laughs) want to say Loveland, and Loveland is the frogs, right? (laughs) Um, (laughs) But you can also take a look at uh, a lot of uh, traditions, especially from like old world traditions in europe and whatnot and there was always a connection between candles and ghosts and candles being blown out being you know a death omen or something like that so i kind of wonder if it's also not a reinvention of that as well and oddly enough you know you do find a couple of examples of engine uh, interference in ghost stories that i was able to dig up as well again not saying that these are all the same thing. I, I suspect they are, and that's definitely the stance that I take in the book. But I think that um, one has to admit that if the Venn diagram isn't a perfect circle, like I suspect, it's still a Venn diagram. And these things tend to use similar mechanisms or manifest in similar ways, even if they're not fundamentally related.
2: Well, the engine, uh, car engines failing, charged batteries going dead. I mean, you see that in both uh, uh, ghost and, and UFO sightings. I mean, I uh, definitely the ghost sightings because I've had that experience myself. Yeah, and, and you know, it's interesting. I, I wanted to find missing time
1: stories in, in ghost stories, and I wasn't really able to find many because the ones that you find tend to be like more of the time slip variety. And I think that says a lot about what ghost sightings are, right? Like it's it's something coming through to us rather than us going to it, which is what I would suggest the missing time thing really represents. You know, it's, it's you going aboard the UFO. It's you going to fairyland. It's you going into the trip. It's you going into the near death experience, the near death realm. Right. But I did speak with a ghost investigator. Um, out of north carolina who didn't have missing time he was at a, an old service station that was supposedly haunted and he didn't have missing time but every one of his new batteries and i spoke to this gentleman firsthand um he was on a panel that i was doing so i have no reason to disbelieve him every single one of his new batteries which he had just replaced and all of his equipment was corroded Ooh! And i don't know how that happens overnight <laughs> you know i mean mm. even if you've got like environmental factors that's not going to happen overnight that does imply that there's some sort of time weirdness there and I didn't get a chance to talk about time because you know the book itself volumes one and two of the ecology of souls is about the third length of the bible and I don't think it's a virtue that it's that long but like I'm like I'm not going to talk about Richard causality and time loops and all this stuff because it's just going to add another you know 50,000 words at least So and, and still not getting answers right that'll be your next book oh, oh, not for a while let's put it that <laughs> way yeah not for a while
2: uh, <laughs> well, you were talking about earlier about uh, uh, culture and uh, uh, you know perceptions based off of culture. It, it reminds me of the, uh, the the story that you have in here that took place at the uh, in 1981 at the Mozambique Zimbabwe border, and I find that story just fascinating.
1: I adore the story because it has so many so many. Uh, ramifications if we if we accept this interpretation right um clifford Mushina, who was working in his village at the time uh saw a bright light descend and he rang the village bell because he thought it was a fire at first and before he collapsed he saw these three figures in these silvery overalls um appear and uh as it turns out several other people in the village also saw this exact same thing um including the entities and it was all investigated and corroborated by Cynthia Hind, who did a lot of great work um, in Africa, trying to bring some of those stories out to the West and, and, and the, in Western ufology. And uh, she's and Mushina said that he thought that these were his ancestors, and that everyone who was there thought that they were ghosts. And and Cynthia Hines said, "Well, you know, with all due respect, wouldn't your ancestors be wearing something different than these silvery space age overalls?" And he shrugs and goes, "Well, times change."
2: <laughs> and- <laughs> yes, they do,
0: yeah. and we'll find out why in our next segment with Joshua, Tim, and Jean. You're in
19: the podcast. <laughs>
14: USA Radio News. I'm Tony
11: Maruso reporting. An armored truck house took place on California's Interstate 5 but has left law enforcement officials stymied. Two armored guards left their Brinks big rig, giving a gang of thieves a 27-minute window to make a huge snatch. Its total value is still a mystery, but estimates range from $10 to $100 million. Prices for used cars have skyrocketed. With more, here's USA Radio Network's Tim Bird.
15: Americans are paying year-record prices for used cars. A report from the car shopping app Copilot reveals the going rate is about $10,000 above pre-pandemic levels. It puts the average price for a used vehicle at over $33,000 in June. That's a half percent increase from May and just below the survey's peak in March. Copilot's CEO saying the demand for used cars remains strong.
11: This is USA Radio News. A man in his 90s was sentenced to life in prison this week in Texas on an arson conviction. Prosecutors say 91 year old Kermit Gable is a career criminal with a rap sheet going back decades. But at his sentencing hearing, defense attorney Kurt Noll said his client was offered a two year plea
8: deal before the case went to trial. Statement's a life sentence. They have never, in my 37 years when life was available, asked for anything less. A Michigan
11: school shooter remains in big boy jail. Here's Tim Berg with more. Ethan Crumbly, the accused
15: Michigan school shooter, will remain behind bars in adult jail. Crumbly was in court Friday for his monthly hearing on if he can be moved to a children's juvenile center. The judge in Pontiac, Michigan, denied that request. Crumbley is accused of killing four students and injuring seven others at Oxford High School in November of last year when he was 15 years old. His trial is set to begin in
11: January. This is USA Radio News.
2: Tracy Torme, screenwriter, producer, you're listening to Paracast, the gold standard of paranormal radio.
0: So times change. And therefore, if
1: you die, you'll be wearing what you died in? Well, the implication and what this is, this anecdote is getting at is something that you see in a lot of actually, you know, indigenous cosmologies. And it's this idea that there is continued evolution in the afterlife, after we die, and this is really far out stuff, and it runs contrary to all our perceptions of the way that the afterlife works. But you find this, for example, in certain Korean cultures. You know what they will give to the ancestors might change because, in, in this one example that I found from a uh, shamaness or shaman from the from Cheju Island, she actually rejected a, an offering of a white cloth garment because uh, the ancestors wear more sophisticated clothing now. But you find the same idea, the idea that the afterlife has its own parallel. Well, continuing evolution in things like the idea that uh, the Chinese afterlife uh, was the empire, just a mirror version of that. Uh, certainly, this is the case with the Egyptian afterlife, the Tuat, where you had to get up and go to sleep and farm your crops and worship and do all these things and eat, you know, all these, all these mundane things still continue. This is an idea that has sort of actually uh, wound its way through a lot of latter half of the 20th century ufology. There are some individuals who've actually suggested that maybe these things are being built on the other side. I know that's far out, but it's an idea that many people have played with. And to the extent that even in, I think, the most modern example of this idea of afterlife technology – comes from Whitley's new book, Uh, A New World, where he has sort of reevaluated exactly what his implant is. And uh, he claims that he was told that it was um, afterlife technology that was developed by electronic voice phenomenon pioneer Constantine Raudovey from the afterlife. Like, he died, and he designed this, and he somehow shared it with officials who put it in his head as a means of communicating with the dead. So it's a strange idea. It's completely unpalatable to a lot of our ideas of, again, not only the UFO phenomena, but just what happens to us after we die. But you see it a lot of places, and it kind
2: of makes me wonder. That's funny because there – And it wasn't so predominant here in the United States, it was more in Europe, and it it was called, instead of EVPs, it was called, what, ITC, and it involved using um, television's video cameras to try to contact the other side. And one of the aspects of that was that allegedly the people here, you know, the living people, were working with scientists on the other side to develop new technologies to communicate across the borders, sort of speak yeah like instrumental trans
1: communication or something like that i think yes um, yes thank you i love the idea not necessarily because i think it's true but because i think it's absolutely fascinating um and you can see you know you can see some of these other similarities which i find really compelling for example there's an itc a researcher in brazil who uh was using her research just to get what she perceived as the voices of the dead. Then that's when the extraterrestrial voices started bleeding through. And you sort of have to wonder, I mean, it, again, it doesn't say it's the same phenomenon, but if both these so-called extraterrestrials can communicate through these means and the dead can as well, then it implies that there's something going on there. But yeah, I mean, I I wasn't aware of that specific example. If, if I was, I probably would have put it in the book. Um, But I think you know if you can look at. Uh, I believe that you know Edison was working on a means of communicating with the telephone with the dead as well, and it's it's simultaneously quaint and very confronting. But what I like about it too is that it's like the ultimate breakaway civilization, right? Like <laughs> it's not it's not a breakaway <laughs> civilization on some foreign island or underground or anything like that. Like it's it's an interdimensional breakaway civilization, and it's just us. Like I find that to be a fascinating idea.
0: What about the idea of a breakaway civilization right here on Earth, in caves, under the ocean, somewhere else, that they are existing separately from us for whatever reason, and either we have some kind of vague contact with them at secret government levels or what?
1: Yeah, I'm not prepared to mount a, a counter-argument to it, because I think some aspects of it are really compelling. Um, you know, I, I would say, again, that all these places where these ultra-terrestrials dwell and where these breakaway civilizations dwell are almost always places that were the other world in the afterlife. I mean, an example that I love to use: um, mountains, right? Mountains are so commonly attributed sites of UFO bases, right? Sometimes the UFOs – sometimes people say there's a you know, a panel in the side of the mountain or something. There's uh, actually an example that I found from Bob Teets who saw a UFO go into a mountain, like just like straight into a mountain without like crashing or there being a portal opened or anything like that. It just went straight into the ground. <laughs> But if you look at sort of that mountain association, you can trace it back to, predictably enough, fairies and the dead. You know, mountains and hills are obviously um, associated with, um, with the fae folk. Uh, that's part of what the mountains and monuments chapter is in Volume 1. Um, but also, that, uh, that uh, association might have itself spawned from the idea that a lot of times the dead were said to dwell on or in mountains. Um, it was very common, especially in you know Western medieval literature, to think of the dead as sort of living a second life within the mountain. Um, similarly, you know in Japan, uh, lots of times uh, grave sites would be on the tops of mountains, and certain parts of Kenya, ancestral spirits would dwell, um, you know, around or in mountains. And you know, for a couple of different reasons, um, you know, burial mounds look a lot like mountains. Uh, I'm not sure if it's chicken or the egg—if those were designed to look like mountains, or you know. Um, or vice versa on some sort of archetypal level. But also, you know, the idea that when you're on top of a mountain, you theoretically are closer to, uh, to the heavens. You know, it's the Axis Mundi like connecting heaven to earth, and you are literally closer to the divine when you're atop a mountain. But again, I find it so interesting that uh, things like breakaway civilizations and UFOs still retain that mountain uh, connection that has been with us since, I mean, arguably time immemorial.
0: Now, as I've grown older, I've become increasingly afraid of going up mountains. I won't drive up mountainous roads. I will not do it. So, for example, if I want to go to Sedona, Arizona from the Phoenix area, there's a mountainous road on the way and I will not go there anymore. I mean, if someone has a Stargate or can transport me, you know, Scotty, beam me up or something or send me over there, I would do it in a heartbeat. But now I'm not going to do it.
1: Yeah, I remember a couple of years ago well, a couple of years ago, probably eight years ago, um, I was at a I was at a wedding on top of a mountain and it was like a literally a fifteen or twenty minute drive up this mountain up these winding roads, and I'm like, Well, nobody's going home tipsy tonight because you're gonna go straight off the side of the mountain. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's it can be quite confronting, especially like, you know, out west. They they don't have nearly as many guardrails as you do out out east here.
0: Right. I was able to do it far easier driving up to Vermont when I lived in Vermont many thousands of years ago. No problem going up this hill to the radio station I worked at. There were two radio stations I worked at. You go up a hill, not like a high hill, but, you know, maybe a hundred, couple hundred feet or something like that. No problem. I could do it. I could manage it. No big deal. But lately, I don't know. Maybe E.T. is telling me something.
1: Yeah, or it's, you know, it's that conflation with the dead, and you're just <laughs> approaching, approaching uh, the divine, and you realize it, <laughs> maybe.
0: As I get closer and closer, being, you know, 12,000 years old, you feel that you are closer to what's going on. But then there's the other theory here about life after death, which is that maybe you've died 100 times already, but each time you go into another reality, and you just move on. I just wish
1: you'd get younger yeah and you know each reality i guess still has monday mornings right i mean that's <laughs> rough <laughs> uh,
2: yeah that part that part of the uh, uh interdimensional travel never changes does it no <laughs> monday
1: uh, yeah well, it's like you know i mentioned you know it's so funny because you see a lot of these ancient death traditions and You know, time and again, there's oftentimes uh, a fee to pay the ferryman across the river. (laughs) Like it's a death and taxes, right? (laughs) The two universal constants.
2: Which is interesting because supposedly you're not supposed to be able to take it with you. That's the tradition of uh, putting the coin under uh, a dead person's tongue so they have something to pay.
1: Right, which is why you've got to have very good descendants who are very uh, conscientious and actually will take the effort to, to give you something. Yeah. <laughs> you know what?
0: We're going to give people something right now. Check it out with Joshua, Gene and Tim. You're in
19: the Paragast.
9: Thank you for listening to GCN.
12: Call Advantage Gold at 800-900-8000. Call
20: 800-900-8000. Jake was in big trouble with the IRS. He owed how much? 92
7: This is
20: Jacques Vallée, and you're listening to the podcast, the gold standard of paranormal radio.
0: You can't take it with you or can you? In the movie Ghost, the guy is killed, and guess what? He's still wearing the same clothing. That's another tradition in ghost stories. You wear whatever you died in, which is fine if you die and there's no injury to the clothing, it's not ripped to shreds. If it's ripped to shreds, it gets to be a little bit ridiculous.
1: You know, that's an interesting point, though, that you bring up, Shane, uh, because, you know, you see time and again these grave goods that are interred. Um, some people speculate that the reason that fairies are associated with gold and, you know, you go into the fairy hill to steal the gold or the leprechaun's gold or something is because of that conflation between grave goods that people would be buried with, oftentimes massive amounts of wealth. You know, you see this time and again and, you know, another one of those persistent grave goods are the psychopomp symbols, you know, uh, horses. Very commonly interred, especially with royalty. And that's pretty much universal. I mean, you see some Mongolian burial mounds where they're like 15 horses or something like that. You know, ship burials. You no, know, we, we have this idea of like, you know, Viking burials being, you know, you're put in a boat and you're set off to sea and they fire a flaming arrow. And apparently the flaming arrows weren't common if they happened at all. <laughs> Even like pushing them out to sea wasn't as common as we're led to believe. But very much so, people were buried with. With ships, in ships, Um, even some uh, Viking ship burials are sort of like ship effigies, so it's got this sort of elliptical ring of stones that are around the burial to symbolize the shape of a ship, which, not coincidentally, kind of looks like a flying saucer from the side or a cigar-shaped UFO.
0: You know, of course, that they give you that tradition in Star Trek, where in the movie Star Trek to Wrath of Khan, where Spock supposedly dies, they send his body in its coffin into space. Of course, it lands on the Genesis planet. And we therefore have the third movie that Leonard Nimoy directed. Maybe that was part of the deal. Give me another check.
1: You know, I've been playing with the idea for a while that Spock... Is like a fairy archetype, and I can't really make a good case. But the fact that he was sort of the instigating catalyst for the the genesis planet and all the vegetation that sprouted is kind of kind of puts one in the mind of theosophic fairies as nature elementals. So maybe that's a thread I can pull on. It's it's another one of those dare I say universals where you know some of our first coffins were lit- literal boats. I mean, there have been some recent excavations in China that are thousands of years old of these coffin coffin boats or boat coffins. And again, that's that shipment. It's that ship theme, that distant journey theme, that keeps rearing its head time and time again. And and honestly, like that's something that one of the most striking things that I found regarding lake monsters was this ship coffin death link, because a lot of. Lake monsters are literal logs, you know, they're misidentifications, that's what the skeptics will say, and certainly that's the case in some instances. But there's also a very strong tradition that the lake monsters can change into and out of logs, like the lake monster literally can just appear as a log. The log, you know, calls to mind all sorts of things, from Jung's idea of the totem balm, the tree as part of, you know, sort of a Mother Earth, uh, devouring mother, return to the womb kind of idea, but um, trees are basically coffins and i know that sounds silly but you've got that idea of uh that young that put forth and you've also got this idea that logs were the first boats right i mean you know it's, it's probably our earliest ancestors paddled across rivers on logs before they you know invented the dugout canoe turning the log into a into a ship and oftentimes people would be buried in those so you see this sort of chain of connections between the coffin to the canoe to the log to the lake monster and i think that's that's in a lot of ways quite poetic the canoe being a transport device yeah uh, otherworldly transport you know you find this in a lot of uh, native american myths where sometimes um that's one I'm thinking of specifically, and I'm sorry I can't remember the tribe right offhand. But uh, there's a a boy who asks a tree where his deceased, I believe, sister went, and the tree just sort of tumbles into the the tree tumbles into the water, and he hops on the tree, and the tree transports him to the to the afterlife, so he can be, visit his dead relative. And that's the multiverse all over again.
0: We are so obsessed with the multiverse, especially in pop culture now.
2: Where every comic book
0: hero has a corresponding version of himself or herself or whatever in another
1: universe. Yeah, and it's been around a while, and I find it, I mean, very much in the same way that you had Volcano and Dante's Peak in the same year or Armageddon and, uh, oh, what was the other one that year? I'm trying to remember the other asteroid movie.
0: It's called The Other Asteroid Movie. Deep Impact, yeah. Deep Um, Impact. But you see, there's a thing here, too, which is so strange about that, which is you think, well, maybe the producers of one movie hear that another movie is underway. They will try to cash in. But if you look at how movies are made, it can take years to put together a movie. You first have to have a concept, agree to a script, agree to a director, a producer, the Actors, actresses who will be in the movie. All this preparation takes years. And so if one year you're thinking about a movie, no guarantee will ever be made. And suddenly the news comes out. Oh, Armageddon is under construction. Yeah. Will there be a deep impact? Well, how could there be that quickly? Maybe it's just that you have multiple production companies coming on with a similar idea.
1: Yeah, and you know we're definitely seeing that with multiversal things um, right now, not just in the superhero genre, but other films as well. And and of course, some of those are copycats, but I, I can't help but think that there's something a little bit stranger to it, as you're alluding to, and it's almost this very 14 idea. In in the true like Charles Fort sense, I, if memory serves, and I might be wrong about this, um, he suggested that there was just a time and a place for us to harness steam locomotion because the teapot had whistled the secrets of of harnessing the power of steam for centuries, and it was just like at some point it was oh it's locomotion time, you know it's it's the industrial revolution, it's steam engine time, like everything just sort of pivoted at once. And you could probably make the same comparison to the agricultural revolution in antiquity as well. I would imagine. But it, it's kind of like the—I kind of like the idea that some things are just pre-scripted, and there's something, something in the air or something in the water <laughs> that makes us all come to these same conclusions or do these things at their pre-scripted time.
0: Well, in the last Spider-Man movie, you had three different versions of Spider-Man played by the three different actors who had that role in the past twenty years, which was wacky. And then on the Crisis of Infinite Earths on the CW TV network in the U.S., they had three different versions of Superman. Two were heroes, one was a villain, and one of the heroes was the guy who played Superman in 2006 in a movie called Superman Returns, Brandon Ralph. And you think, Mm -hmm. you know, obviously, you know, we're doing this to get an audience. They had two versions of The Flash, the movie version and the TV version, same reason.
1: Yeah, if if memory serves, I think the new Flash movie is going to be playing with multiverses as well. So, I guess if you don't like multiverses, you're out of luck and we're just going to have to weather this storm for a while.
0: There'll be at least two or three different versions of Batman. Ben Affleck, Michael Keaton. Why do you make Michael Keaton a new version of Batman? He must
1: be 70 years old. Yeah, I mean, you've got to cash in on that existing intellectual property, right?
0: Oh, well. Oh, well. Anyway, I don't want to get so much into the multiverse in terms of comic books or movies or things like that. But it's also part of the culture that we're being exposed to a concept that there are multiple versions of ourselves. There are alternate realities. And this has been drifting in the UFO field for many years. Most people do not hear about it. I was talking about it in the mid 60s. Jacques Vallée is talking about it. John Keel is talking about it. It's something that has percolated.
1: Yeah, and, and you know, it, it puts me in the mindset. I mean, I, I think, again, as I was alluding to with electronic interference, like there does seem to be this interplay between fiction and reality. And, you know, you might see... Something Tim talked about earlier with co-creation, another idea that people like to trot out is the idea of the tulpa, right? The thought form that supposedly uh, Alexander David Neal um, learned about during her trip to um, Tibet where she meditated on the idea of a portly, friar-tuck-style monk that literally manifested and sort of got out of her control. Um, you know, I'm I'm sort of… Ambivalent on the idea of tulpas, um, I have spoken to some people who said, who were interested in like, you know, these strange topics and they said that they got an audience with a highly placed, um, a highly placed Buddhist, uh, monk and, and they spoke with him and they, uh, them about tulpas and they said what?
2: <laughs> so I don't
1: know. if That's the idea that maybe it's been overblown, or the idea that that's sacred knowledge that's only you know reserved for the highest echelons of their of their hierarchy. But um, you know, I don't know how much how much uh, I ascribe to the idea of t- the tulpa. But you do see lots of lots of things that seem to emerge from fiction into reality. And I don't know if we are authoring reality or if. um Or if we're in a simulation or whatever. But there does seem to be some sort of back and forth between what we see and what we think of, you know. We're
0: going to think of this here
1: with Joshua, Gene, and Tim. You're in
2: the paracast.
9: Thank you for listening to GCN. Visit GCNlive.com today.
4: That's R O C K O I D S dot com. Jake was in
20: big trouble with the IRS. He owed how much? 92
4: Welcome back to the Paracast, the gold standard of paranormal radio. And now, here's Gene Steinberg.
0: Speaking of tulpas, they even mentioned that in a 1990s movie based on the pulp fiction character, The Shadow.
1: Uh, I knew you were going to bring it up. Yes, yes, it's a great story. I
0: thought that was a really good movie, but the scripting was over the top. The art direction was superb. Alec Baldwin had that dark look in his eyes that made him the perfect Lamont Cranston. And the beginning of the film influenced Batman
1: Begins a decade later. I'm always interested in reevaluating the the value of some of these films in hindsight. Um, But, you know, I I think what you were alluding to was uh, Gibson seeing the shadow in his apartment, right? In Greenwich Village. Yes. Yeah. Walter Uh, B. Gibson. Well, you write
0: 300 novels about a character, you're going to start seeing things. (laughs) But think here also that The Shadow is considered to be
1: highly influential of Batman some years later. Yeah, and, you know, I speak, I've spoken to enough fiction writers who, who tell me that they don't write the arcs of their characters so much as they basically, like, transcribe them right like the characters have such a mind of their own i even spoke to someone who said that some of their characters would show up in their dreams and that you know you try to make a character do something and they just won't do it on the page which is a bizarre idea to me but it kind of makes sense and then you have you know this other examples um of uh For example, um, Alan Moore, who supposedly encountered his character, John Constantine, you know, Moore's kind of a quirky guy, so I don't know how how true that is. But you also have the Philip experiment uh, conducted by, I believe, Canadian, I believe, Canadian parapsychologists who invented this entirely fictionalized uh, narrative for a young boy in the English Civil War, including his name and everything. And they were actually supposedly able to manifest in a seance correct answers to their questions about this fictional backstory from a fictional ghost. So it's almost like they created a ghost, right? Which implies that there's something that we are bringing to this phenomena, and it may be something like thought, or it may be something um, like, again, returning to that idea from Ecology of Souls, that there's a part of us that uh, acts with its own certain degree of autonomy.
0: Well, you also bring up sources of creativity. And we all know that Paul McCartney, in dreams, dreamed of the essence of songs such as Yesterday and Let It Be. Now, he, of course, is a multi-billionaire. So he's done some just great things over the years and, and continues to do so, continues to perform. On a very, 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 very lesser note, really lesser note, I remember, for example, Dreaming Sequence's of a character that my son and I were writing about for a sci-fi novel and we set it down and we wrote it down and came out fairly decent. I can't say operate on that level or one millionth of that level, but you see the point. I think that happens to a lot of people.
1: Yeah, I've had a little bit of that myself. I mean, I'm not, I long to be a creative writer, but I kind of have imposed some standards on myself that I don't think I can quite accomplished so um but having said that you know i have had moments where i come up with a connection or i realize a connection while i'm dreaming and uh, there's been some research some people have actually claimed, if memory serves, some quite proficient people in their relative disciplines have claimed to be able to practice whatever they need to get better at in their lucid dreams. So you'll have like a, you know, a tennis player who practices tennis in their dreams, which sounds kind of exhausting to me. But I mean, what do I know? I'm not getting better while I sleep, so I can't, I can't really knock on them too much.
0: Well, I obviously would love to be able to do that. My back would feel better right now. I get some back pain when I walk. And it's not worth, to me, taking the medications needed to get rid of it. My might is a chiropractor and see what he can do. But the point would be here, it's better to put up with a little bit of achiness than the substitution or the alternative.
1: I mean, yeah, that would be the cruel irony, right? That you get into your dream and your back's just as bad as it is in waking life. You can't
0: get any better. You're dreaming. If you have dreaming, don't you have
1: the power? Yeah. Uh, it's, uh, it can't catch a break, right?
0: <laughs> you think you have the power? I can do anything. I can fly. I can go through the Stargate. I can take a spaceship. I can beam up. I can beam down. All these powers I can have because it's already out there in our culture now.
2: Yeah. You know, looking. Along these same lines, it reminds me of a story that you have in, in, in your book, Joshua, about uh, a woman who alleged to have had uh, um, abduction experiences who underwent hypnosis, uh, which you know some people argue is just nothing more than just a dream state. And the hypnotist was asking questions about the motives of uh, the Extraterrestrials that had uh, abducted her, and she would actually pause mm-hmm. to get mm-hmm. the answers. Yeah, I think if you're
1: if you're approaching these topics honestly, you've got to admit that there are plenty of problems with hypnosis, right? But I I do think that we can kind of throw the baby out with the bathwater when we just say, well, let's not pay attention to any of it, because I kind of wonder, and this is an idea that my friend uh, Miguel Romero, a Red Pill Junkie came up with or at least I first heard it from him was the idea that you know when the hypnotist is putting someone under they're not necessarily resembl- re- remembering what happened to them but like they're actually embarking on an other world travel in the moment right like so their consciousness is going somewhere and it's not a memory it's just it's just what's happening as they're on the couch right in some sort of other realm altered state of consciousness and again unfalsifiable don't know what to do with it um people do retrieve um some veridical information uh that they wouldn't otherwise be able to obtain during under hypnosis so that might suggest that there's a reality to it but i think it's really interesting um you know similarly um if anybody watched uh the documentary series the web documentary series hellier um it, uh, there was an example where they actually implanted a, an alien abduction in someone's head during hypnosis. So, <laughs> you know, I, it's wild. Um, there's also another example that uh, Gregory Little uh, referenced, and I don't have more information about the case, but I believe it was some witnesses in Kentucky who were asked to remember their UFO experience. And over the course of the hypnotic regression, they actually began manifesting the symptoms of the sighting on the couch. So, you know, conjunctivitis and burning sensations, et cetera. Um, some of which I believe if memory serves were actually like visible on the body. And from that you say, well, yeah, so maybe there's something else going on at this, uh, other level of, of consciousness, uh, in these hypnotic sessions and hypnotic regressions. And it starts to ask a lot, it starts to bring up a lot of questions about things like stigmata, um, and, uh, dream injuries, which are pretty common. Uh, you know, people will have dreams that a demon attacked them in their dream and they'll wake up and they'll have three scratch marks on themselves. Or, you know, there's a dream, there's an example that I found of a Scottish witness who got punched in the teeth in their dream and woke up with like a bloodied mouth and, and some teeth missing.
6: It so, kind of reminds
0: yeah. me of the TV series Evil. CBS went to Paramount Plus and became even more grisly. And you have scenes like that where people seem to have a dream, but the dream has a connection to reality.
1: Yeah, and and it's also... Again, I keep on going back to these ancient traditions. It's so congruent with that because, you know, our ideas of werewolves transforming, like a person transformed, is not really what werewolves were. And they were either administered through psychedelic substances or witchcraft or whatever. But oftentimes it was understood as someone's soul leaving and either inhabiting a wolf or becoming a werewolf all on its own. And injuries inflicted on the werewolf would be mirrored on the body of the sleeper. Um, so it's very much part and parcel with that. And then once you start playing with that idea, you have to ask yourself how many of these alien abductions are actually unfolding in, you know, in physical reality. Because time and again, they look so much like OBEs, out-of-body experiences. Um,
0: You know, after um, mm -hmm. listening to you talk, I think about the logic they use when they created the character of the Wolfman in the 1940s. In the first film, The Wolfman with Lon Chaney Jr., he's bitten by a werewolf and thus becomes a werewolf. But later on, it got more interesting, and I'll tell you how that works out. But it got more interesting where towards the end of the series, they have this doctor who tries to diagnose what really happened to him and find... A way to cure him of being a werewolf and killing people and going through all that nonsense and making films for which there's a, I guess hopefully a decent box office. We got more to come with Gene and Tim and Joshua. You're in the podcast. <laughs> Legendary to cash in on this special deal at Namecheap.com. Namecheap.com.
4: First came Attack of the Rockoids, and it was a critically acclaimed success. And now there is The Coming of the Protectors. A former military intelligence man is contacted by a space woman in a dream. A dream that turns out to be a nightmare because evil forces on her distant planet are planning to conquer the Earth. This is gripping science fiction of the classic kind. Attack of the Rockoids and The Coming of the Protectors. Find out
6: Did you know that you could easily be saving up to 90% on your taxes by simply making a phone call? That's right, the Fortune 500, the globalists, all the big billionaires and millionaires, they know about the loopholes written into the law where most of them pay almost zero tax. In fact, many of them pay no tax. You even see it on the news. How are they able to do that, but the common person can Dot .com that's gcn taxcut.com
19: the only way you miss out is not making the phone call make it now
4: We'd like to hear from you. If you have a comment or question about the Paracast, send it to news at theparacast.com. That's news at theparacast.com. And don't forget to visit our famous Paracast community forums at forum.theparacast.com.
0: So in one of of the House of Dracula, House of Frankenstein movies, where this mad doctor is curing... Larry Talbot, the Wolf Man, and he says part of the issue here is there's some brain activity coupled with his belief that he's a werewolf creates the effect. So he's treated with a medication that cures him. But once again, they actually went into something here that I thought was more sophisticated than a normal horror film would get. Not just saying, oh, he's bitten by a werewolf, he becomes one, end of story. This here... The belief system, and it's manifesting itself, I think. Isn't that a little bit sophisticated for this kind of movie?
1: Yeah, I I always like it when these sort of strange ideas get smuggled in. Um, My wife and I just started Outer Range on Amazon last night, and I know nothing about it, and nobody spoil it for me. I haven't the vaguest idea what you're talking about. Uh, it's it's Josh Brolin, and he's a rancher, and he finds a giant hole on his property, and strange things happen. And, you know, within the first 10 minutes, there's missing time. And uh, the whole vibe is very, you know, coast-to-coast uh, coast AM, Mel's Hole, if you're familiar with that story. Um, but, uh, I'm not. I, tell
0: our listeners. Tell our listeners.
1: Well, if, if memory serves, again, I don't know the story to— t- a great degree. But um, I believe it was a farmer or someone who found a giant hole that was bottomless on their property and strange things started coming out of it. So I, I don't know if that's what they're going for. But I, I remember saying to my wife last night, I'm like, I hope it's not aliens because like that's just <laughs> what we go to all the time now is just aliens. And when these other ideas come in, it's, it's interesting. And I know it sounds like I'm antagonistic towards the eth even in my my fun time right my downtime and that's not the case it's just i feel like it's it's so overdone the way that we uh see something that's you know mysterious in these in these films and such. And the go-to explanation is, Oh, extraterrestrials. And I think the reason that we do that is because it's the only thing that we really find palatable nowadays. Like if something's magical, well, it must be aliens, you know? Um, so in that sense, like, you know, aliens have taken the placeholder of gods and fairies and all these other things, because they just use this like a magical hand wave. in a lot of these narratives, I've seen some stuff in some other, some other uh, Netflix series and whatnot. It's like, okay, can we just like spice it up a little bit, a little bit of variation in there, you know? The show is called
0: Outer Range, and the summary is a rancher fighting for his land and family discovers an unfathomable mystery, the edge of Wyoming's wilderness, and Josh Brolin is the star of the movie, and Josh Brolin is a really, really terrific actor. I remember when he was playing a young Tommy Lee Jones in one of the Men in Black films. You have to be
1: on Amazon Prime. Yeah, and, you know, I I kind of, uh, I'm so hesitant to start a new streaming series now because I've had my heart broken too many times by something that wasn't picked up for a second or third season. That's like, well, you know, I want to see something that's contained. I don't want to be left with all these dangling uh, loose ends. So I don't know. I've pushed myself out there and I'm going to try to love again, but we'll see what happens without a range if it gets picked up.
0: Well, the thing, of course, is that quite often with a streaming show, it is picked up, Shortly before or after the season ends. And if all the shows are up there, you could literally join for one month, watch a few shows and say, "Ah, that's not enough. I'll just go. Apple TV gives you a one week free trial. I know you get more if you buy new Apple equipment, maybe three months, but just going in there cold one week. And what you do here is you wait till the show is finished because a lot of those are streaming one new episode a week. So you say, okay, the show has eight episodes. You wait till they're all available. You take advantage of the one-week offer and you have that week to see all eight episodes and then make a decision if you want to continue the membership.
1: Yeah, that's that's been my philosophy for a lot for a lot of different media. You know, there was a time in my life when I used to play video games relatively frequently, not like these people who, who identify with gamer culture. That's never been really appealing to me. But uh, I always uh, used to wait until the new console comes out, then pick up the old console and all the games are cheap. So, yeah, just the t- timing is everything, I guess.
0: Right now, the streaming world is very much changing because Netflix has not been doing as well. And therefore, they're trying to do some reorganization. And you've got all these other services, Paramount Plus with all the Star Trek stuff and Amazon Prime. And I expect to see all the Stargate stuff back on there soon because Amazon bought MGM and therefore owns James Bond. And then you've got Disney Plus and Hulu, which is kind of sort of part of Disney. And you've got Peacock, which is NBC. And you've got, I mean, HBO Max. Which is what used to be Warner Brothers and maybe still is because it's Warner Discovery. The consolidation and changes in the industry can make you dizzy. But I also felt after all this is that at one time, joining up with video streaming services was a way to cut the cable cord. Cable's too expensive, can't afford it. So instead, you take a few streaming services. And then your cable company, which may be your ISP, they say, well, you're using so much bandwidth, we'll charge you more. So you pay more for that. Then you pay a monthly fee for each of these extra services. And there's so many, you can't even begin to count them. There are so many. And suddenly you wake up and my God, I'm going broke.
5: Yeah.
1: I mean, it's, and I think it's reaching critical mass. You know, I think that at some point, it's the the streaming model is going to implode, and we're going to go back to something that looks a lot more like bundling, like you used to see in the cable industry that people used to hate. Um, but I think it's it's inevitably going to go there. Who knows? Well,
0: now on some of the cable boxes, remember we're talking about the U.S., and the organization, the contracts, is entirely different in other countries. But here in the U.S. is all I can talk about. And now on some of the cable Set-up boxes, they include links or apps to other services. So if you're on Cox, which is a medium-sized cable company in the US with outlets in what? Nevada and Arizona, they have HBO Max, Netflix, Hulu, and even Peacock on the cable box. So you just switch over on the cable box. Of course, what happens is you get a bill with extra services on it, but this way you don't need to go into multiple services. Unfortunately, it doesn't work very well because the apps, the way they run in those cable boxes are dreadful.
1: Mm. Yeah. The the landscape is changing, that's for sure.
0: We need ET to have it fixed, all right, because it's too quite
21: complicated out there. That's true.
1: And maybe uh, get better reception with uh, by taking the antenna <laughs> higher.
0: Well, I live in an area here where having an antenna doesn't work so well. I'm right at the fringe. And sometimes I can get decent reception from a digital antenna. And sometimes it mm, doesn't work. So I'm kind of stuck, got to get something basic with cable. And once again, I could take a streaming service, but then the cable company, which is also the ISP, will exact more money from me for the extra bandwidth. I mean, they'll make it from you no matter what. They're not going to get your Netflix money. Maybe they'll incorporate it in the set-top box and get a commission. Or they'll sell you more bandwidth, and they'll grab the money from you that way. Either way, they win. You lose. There's got to be a better way. Oh, I know an antenna. If it was possible to receive a good signal and get all free TV again, all over again, back to the beginning with Jean and Joshua and Tim. You're in the
2: Paracast.
9: Thank you for listening to GCN.
17: President Biden made his first live appearance virtually since he was diagnosed with COVID-19, participating in a meeting with his economic team on gas prices. Let me start
20: by apologizing my voice. I'm feeling sure much better than I sound.
17: Mr. Biden has been isolating in the White House residence, and he and the people around him have been emphasizing the 79-year-old president is hard at work for the American people. A fast-moving wildfire near Yosemite National Park has erupted, prompting evacuations even as firefighters made progress against an earlier blaze that burned to the edge of giant sequoia trees. This is USA Radio News. The White House announced that the U.S. is sending an additional $270 million in security assistance to Ukraine, a package that will include additional medium-range rocket systems and tactical drones. Ukraine forces have used U.S.-made rocket launchers and tactical drones to destroy dozens of Russian targets and hold at bay Russia's larger and more heavily-equipped forces. There has been several arrests for cryptocurrency fraud.
10: Federal prosecutors are announcing the first insider trading case involving cryptocurrency. U.S. prosecutors in New York City said Thursday that a former product manager for Coinbase and two others have been charged with wire fraud. A U.S. attorney in Manhattan said, fraud is fraud whether it occurs on the blockchain or on Wall Street. From the West Coast USA Radio News Bureau, I'm Lance Prime.
17: This is USA Radio News.
4: All right, crew, let's get her dug.
17: Honey,
16: you want to give me a hand? I'm planting that tree, remember?
4: No matter how large
3: or small your digging project may be no matter how urban or rural you must always call 811 before any digging project. 811 is our national one call number alerting your local utility companies to come out and mark any lines they have near your dig site. You must call 811 at least 2 to 3 business days before any digging project so you can avoid hitting our essential buried utilities. This includes natural gas and petroleum pipelines electric communication cables, and water and sewer lines. So before you do this, or this, make sure you do this. For digging projects big or small, make the call to 811. Brought to you by Common Ground Alliance.
19: This is Jerome Clark, author of the UFO Encyclopedia and other books. You're listening to the Paracast.
10: They'll
0: say, Gene's an old guy wishing for the past that never existed. I remember the TV reception was snow. So I know how bad it looked, how good it looks now, and also the price tag.
1: Yeah, I mean, I, I don't want to continue too far down this rabbit hole that we're <laughs> we're on the way down. One of many well, rabbit holes. I still have a VCR and uh, a lot of stuff on VHS. I threw on Harry and the Hendersons for the boys the other day, and I was like, "Man, how did we ever watch this stuff?" Like, you you don't didn't realize it at the time, but like, the the picture quality on VHS was so atrocious by modern standards. It's just, it's almost mind boggling that. Yeah, and in some cases, I think you know it was a benefit to the medium because it sort of spackled over some of the shortcomings of visual effects and whatnot. But uh, it is a different world nowadays with, with with the clarity that we have.
0: Remember also the TV screen size was much smaller. If you're watching a 19 or 26 inch screen and you're watching the VCR, it's fine. There's no problem with it. But if you're watching something on a 40 inch 42 inch 50 inch tv the quality is dreadful and you see how bad the quality is at that size because you get used to watching those larger screens so i understand about the vhs my vhs is long gone okay in fact my blu-ray player is hardly ever used i sitting now in my office and i haven't figured out what to do with it because we just watch what's on the regular tv set
1: Well, the thing that bothers me is that when you don't own the media, it can be taken away from you. And, uh, you know, we keep on seeing that with a lot of different streaming platforms for whatever reason, deciding to take down episodes or to, you know, to cut out parts of of films and stuff. And it's like, well, you know, when you own that DVD, that's not changing, you know. But then the format goes away. Yeah. I mean, it's gotten to the point nowadays, though, where there are so many niche producers of, of things that I think that it'll You can still find not only the format and the the media, but you can also find the players as well. I mean, there are a lot of people who are releasing stuff on cassette, which I don't really understand. But they're releasing, like, you know, albums on cassette and stuff. It's sort of a retro kitschy thing. And it's cheap enough that they're able to do it, even if they, you know, have a garage band. So who knows? Well, you can certainly make a CD. That's pretty cheap. You can also
0: release vinyl. But you need a mastering place to make the vinyl acetate. And then you need, of course, a production plant. And they are working overtime.
1: That is very true.
0: Whatever is old is new again. I think people forget, though, the romanticism of vinyl. I understand it. And you have this big jacket and you take out the record and you wipe it clean and you put it on the turntable and you put the needle on one of the tracks and you listen and you play it over and over and over again and you realize from the first play it's kind of like taking a car brand new car out of the showroom and suddenly it loses 20 percent of its value when you play vinyl every time you play it the sound quality gets worse and
1: worse Yeah, I mean, I think it was uh, Billy Joel who said the good old days weren't always good and tomorrow ain't as bad as it seems. So (laughs) there you have it.
0: Well, at least you can survive much longer that way. Well, let's look at tomorrow. Is there a message implicit in all this craziness with UFOs and Chandler's and contacts and all this other
2: stuff?
1: I would say absolutely. Um, And this is something that you see bear itself out in the follow-up interviews with people who have had all these sorts of experiences. Um, And it is essentially the idea that one should die to death. And what I mean by that is that uh, one should not be afraid of death and one should not allow the fear of our lives ending to eclipse the work that's needed to be done here and the interactions and, and the life that we live, um, as evidence, I would cite that sentiment amongst, uh, NDE experiencers that bears itself out in the work of folks like, uh, Jeffrey. And I believe it's Jody long, um, who are two in your death experiencers, um, bears itself out in a lot of the research that Ray Hernandez compiled for the free, uh, survey with a lot of experiences of different contact modalities, but with a focus on UFO contact, um, Certainly bears itself out in uh, some of the some of the psychedelic literature and what I mean specifically to that degree is uh, people who have started seeing a positive use for administering substances like psilocybin mushrooms to people who are terminally ill and a lot of times the experience that they have will completely obliterate their fear of death um, and I would argue that it's also Well, Likely, this was the message that you see in a lot of these ancient mystery cults like at Eleusis and whatnot, um, that the experience was to be so frightening and to sort of be almost like a near-death simulator, that it would uh, sort of convince folks that uh, they should not have this uh, endearing fear of death.
2: It just makes me think, though, that, I mean, you, you talked about the uh, um, uh, 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 the being, beings of light who greet people on uh, uh, their, their deathbeds that uh, oftentimes people are so afraid when they're in the process of dying. Uh, but then when they start having these experiences as they get closer to death, it's like the weight's been lifted from them
1: yeah i mean it's it's uh it it tends to reframe one's priorities and this is not only borne out in terms of their own life and their own priorities but in the way that they treat others as well um you know, it's 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 sort of a, a minor motif amongst uh, UFO experiencers, and it's a a major motif amongst NDEers if they if they integrate it properly. You know, oftentimes there will be a period of depression following some of these experiences, especially in the case of NDEs, where they'll sort of feel separated from that wonderful um, experience that they had. But then, typically, they tend to come around to it. Um, come around to the beauty of of life here, um, after a time. And they generally are marked by being more compassionate and being more giving. And, uh, you know, in addition to the suite of psi abilities, which they receive, which again, it's something that you see after near death experiences. You see it, uh, after, you know, uh, alien abductions, even though people don't like to talk about it, like poltergeist activity and precognition and healing, um, are very common after, uh, some of these experiences
0: Um, you bring up something there which reminds me of the experience i cited that i was aware of involving a woman who had taken hashish kind of a small dose or not very powerful dose and she had an experience there and maybe in a loose sense it was a near-death experience then
1: well, I mean, you know, that's sort of part of what the the book gets at is that, like, a lot. Yes, the the psychedelic experience is part and parcel with with the near death experience because you know you. you uh, there's a great study that came out a couple of years ago, which I'm surprised hasn't made more um, waves than it has. But uh, Mario Kittness and David Luke's released a study, and I've had a couple of people read it and say, and ask them, like, "Am I interpreting this right?" Because the the results are quite quite profound. It's that frequent psychonauts. Um, people who take these substances on a frequent basis were do report things like levitation and precognition and RSPK, um, you know, psychokinesis associated with poltergeist phenomena, things like that, um, at a greater level. But when they are off of the substances, like when they're not high, basically, um, which sort of runs contrary to what we would assume, you know, all oh, the people are hallucinating because they're taking these substances, but the, the data seems to suggest that the, gateways of perception and these abilities remain as after effects long, long, you know, days, weeks, months, maybe even years after having these experiences. And of course, that was what, you know, that was what the uh, the sh- shamanic initiation is, right? It's just sort of opening those gateways as well. So, and, and you find it with people who are abducted to fairyland. Lots of times they'll return and they would become uh, ministers or they would become faith healers or something along those lines. It's very common motif.
0: Complete change of their lives after undergoing one of these encounters. So interesting. We have one more segment to spend with our guest, Joshua Kutchen. He'll be back for after the Paracast for more discussions, more topics, because this is one of those things when you start talking about the mysteries of life, you never run out of the mysteries. It's far more complicated than just saying UFOs or spaceships, ghosts or ghosts, cryptids or whatever they are. More to come with Gene and Tim and Joshua
10: in The paradise.
9: You are listening to GCN. Visit GCNlive.com today.
0: Hey, listeners.
12: Call Advantage Gold at 800-900-8000. Call 800-900-8000.
7: home values are up and so is your equity we offer you a way to use it no need to use your savings call new american funding now and see how much cash out you can get call 800-721-2477 800-721-2477 721 2477 that's 800-721-2477 NMLS 6606 www.nmlsconsumerexcess.org this is not an offer or commitment to lend Sub- to borrower and property qualifications not all borrowers will qualify terms and conditions apply
14: equal housing opportunity extendivite testimonials on amazon are very informative here's just a few amazon customer five stars honestly this stuff works nick easy to take capsules for those who can't handle the liquid drops easy to take extendivite capsules do the same job Taroka fam. Works great. Like Extendivite very much. Seems to work as advertised. Thanks. Arlene. Five stars. Love this product, Extendivite. Terry W. Five stars. Can't say enough. Great product. Freya. Five stars. I just ordered another. To get your Extendivite today, go to Extendivite.com, that's X-T-E-N-D-O-V-I-T-E.com, or call us at 1-877-928-8822. Extend your life with Extend.
2: Hi, this is Don Ecker, and you are tuned into the Paracast. Let me tell you what, you're going to hear stuff here that you probably
0: won't hear anywhere else. Hear that, George Snorri? So you think here that some of the experiences people have that they report might be,
1: to some degree, preparing themselves for death? Yeah, so this is a criticism that I'm already hearing about the books and I completely empathize and sympathize I guess with it is that Ecology of Souls A New Mythology of Death and the Paranormal puts an awful lot of emphasis on that death thing right I think it's important to see that as sort of your gate one's gateway when they read the book into understanding the the crux of the matter which is that it's really the souls part not the death part of the title that it really needs emphasizing and to that extent you know the book is also as much about things like reincarnation as it is about death it's about that you know the cycle of rebirth and i think people have wondered for some time why the paranormal seems so obsessed with reproduction i guess it's the polite way to put it and uh, because you see this in certain cryptid encounters you know obviously, the alien-human hybrid thing. um, Fairies abducting people, rather, to to sire offspring. And it seems possible to me that the reason that they're obsessed with birth is because they're obsessed with death. I mean, those two things are the different sides of the same coin. Um, They're obsessed with reproduction because they're obsessed with death, which also means that they're obsessed with life and reincarnation and and the revitalization of everything. Um, You definitely see this in a lot of Modern interpretations of the faithful, which, while being tied to the dead, post-theosophy, uh, post uh, late nineteenth century, uh, became sort of stewards of the environment, nature elementals. You know, that's not really something that you see as strongly in a lot of the oldest fairy lore. But you see it after Blavatsky sort of started promoting those ideas, and Steiner was involved too. But there is this emphasis on cyclicality and then again if you take it from that angle then some of these stories which I initially was very hesitant to engage with stories of reincarnation and alien abductions past lives popping up you know in discussions with your alien handlers or even memories of where you were before birth pre-birth memories tied in with the alien abduction experience um, it makes all those a little bit more understandable it's, it's a way to incorporate those instead of just throwing them out which is a what i think a lot of folks who are interested in the ufo topic tend to do
0: well with contact experiences it's very easy to throw them out because some of them sound so conventional (laughs)
1: like
0: sci-fi stories
1: Yeah, it's something I've been fond of saying lately is that, um, if someone comes up to me and tells me an alien abduction experience and it sounds like something you see on TV or in the movies, like, I'm like, okay, well, that's, that's interesting. But when somebody says, you know, they, they do the exact same thing and they give me the same beat by beat and then they end and they go, there was just one thing that was odd. One of the aliens was wearing an I heart New York shirt, you know, <laughs> it's like, okay, well, that's, that's interesting to me because I, I love the high strangeness. The times that I have spoken with uh, witnesses and experiencers who include those details, I have always found it all the more compelling because if I'm going to make up an alien abduction scenario, I'm not going to include – You know, an alien wearing an I heart New York shirt or actually from an actual example um, that happened down here in Georgia in the 70s. There was a flying saucer that landed in a cow pasture and the farmer was paralyzed and these beings floated out. And the entire time from the inside of the ship, the farmer could hear someone screaming, I am Jimmy Hoffa the entire time. It's just those little outliers and that dream logic and that nonsensicality that makes me go, "Okay, well, I don't know if this objectively happened the way that this person is saying it did. But that's a detail that to me seems to suggest that they aren't completely fabricating it because it would be an awful thing to fabricate. You know, I've I've said the same thing about Whitley's output after his, after he stopped writing as many novels, the, his, his early works like Wolfen and the hunger and cat magic and stuff like that are, are good. And they have a consistent tight narrative and, You know, his output since then has its own quirky charm, but it's not it's not constructed in the way that I think someone would if they were completely fabricating the narrative. And that tends to reinforce the possibility that he was actually telling the truth in one of those stories.
0: Well, just putting that aside there, and you have to wonder here about all these crazy cases. We had Kathleen Martin, uh, an abduction researcher on the Paracast a couple of weeks back with me and Tim. And there's something she mentioned previously on the show. That was interesting. She said there's a factor too two about abductions. They don't publicly mention, but when they talk to abductees, they use this as the fact, as Ray Palmer once said, things to make it seem as if these elements are real in terms of something genuinely happened to the experiencer. As I said, just a basis of information. And you think about that, and then you're telling me, of course, The thing that you look for is something just kind of out of left field. They were looking at something that's consistent among the abductions they feel are real. And again, it's not something people generally know, which means they
1: just can't make it up. I think if memory serves, I believe it was Bud Hopkins that did something similar. I don't know if it was or not, but it was either Hopkins or Jacobs um, would include a detail. And I think it might have been as they were regressing people that would say, and now tell me about the floor. Does it look like a hotel bars, parquet floor or something like that. Uh, An example that I do remember offhand is um, in the back of one of Jenny Randall's books, um, her book on star children in the back, it has like, you know, signs to tell if you are a star child and she has stuff that she's discussed in the entire book. Um, And, you know, I admire the hell out of Randall's. So I was like, well, why is she putting this in there? And one of the points that she says is, uh, do the words Sobek Alp mean anything to you? I'm like, Sobek Alp, what does that mean? And I like wrote it down, and I'm playing with it, and it's it's, it's an anagram for placebo, you know, uh, <laughs> placebos. And uh, I was I thought that was a really clever way to sort of separate the wheat from the chaff in terms of, of who might be uh, sort of just trying to feel important, I guess.
0: Kind of a topic or set of topics we can never and ever reach the end of. But Joshua Kutchen will be back for the end for the Paracast Premium Show for things we didn't talk about or didn't talk about in quite as much detail will be referred to. But Joshua right now in full detail will tell you listeners how we can find more of the things he's up to and what he has coming up.
1: Well, Ecology of Souls, uh, New Mythology of Death and the Paranormal, Volumes 1 and 2 are available on Amazon in both print and ebook forms. You can find updates all about all that at joshuacutchin.com, J O S H U A C U T C H I N.com. And I have a couple of appearances coming up. One I'm really excited about is uh, the Midwest Conference on the Unknown, August 5th through 7th in Cape Girardeau, Missouri. Ah, uh, yes. yes, Cape Girardeau, Missouri. Strange place. Yeah, it's a side of a side of a UFO uh, crash. So um I'm just really excited about it. It's a real rogues gallery of people who have been past guests on the Paracast. And uh, if you go to the website cape-events.com and use the promo code CI30, the number 30, you can receive 30% off ticket sales, and it's just going to be fantastic. The following weekend, I will be in Franklin Grove, Illinois. Um, That's August 11th through 14th at the Worldwide Metaphysical Tribe Meetup. Um, And we're going to do a CE5 and call down a UFO, and we're going to see whether or not my
0: I know I'm paranormal kryptonite, I'll tell you that. Remember, of course, some of you listeners might be listening to this after those events, but maybe the following events will be something of interest to you. You can find us on Twitter. Yes, you can find us on Twitter. If you look for the PowerCast, we don't use it very much other than show announcements. But if you interact with us, if you're not driving me completely crazy, I will respond. We're also on Facebook. We have a regular group. We have a Paracast fan club. Unfortunately, Facebook, in its infinite wisdom, does not let us put the URL for theparacast.com on Facebook. And the same is true, by the way, for Tim Swartz's site, conspiracyjournal.com. They don't want you to know the truth. We also have branded merchandise, by the way. At the Paracast.shop. Once again, the Paracast.shop. And we offer a number of very good logos, including the original Paracast logo. And we offer t shirts. And in fact, rock stars are using some of those t shirts, by the way. Can't tell you who they are yet, but we will shortly. Also, we have caps and throw pillows and all that good stuff, the Paracast.shop. And don't forget, The Paracast Plus, don't forget it, because we offer a special subscription package, this show, free of the network ads. We also offer the After the Paracast podcast where people like Joshua stay with us because we rope them in. We have a psychic rope that holds him in, and therefore he will stay with us for further discussion, uncensored, <laughs> unencumbered by terrestrial radio. To become a member, go to the paracast.plus, the paracast.plus for a quick sign up. Use the coupon code UFO twenty UFO two zero, and you get a twenty percent discount on Lifetime or five year memberships, plus Joshua Kutchen. Again, thank you for joining us on the Paracast.
1: It's a lot of fun, Gene. Thanks. Thank